Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, everyone, before we get started, the union. Join the union.us. We need every one of you out there. Join the union.us. Join the pro-democracy army that is going to take it to the anti-democratic candidates this fall, that's going to support the pro-democracy candidates and groups that are going to help us defend this great, messy, noisy, loud American experiment. We can do it, but we can't do it without you. Join the union.us. Sign up today and get involved. And now, on to the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Joe Walsh, former congressman, former member of the Republican Party, former presidential candidate, and current host of White Flag with Joe Walsh, in which he has a conversation where he interviews guests that don't agree with him in search of common ground. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, Reed, I'm a fan of what you guys do, man. It's good to be with you. So, Joe, where to start? You've had probably as unique a journey as <laughs> anyone. We all have this path of those of us who were Republicans. I'm an independent. I believe you're an independent. Yeah. Rick Wilson, Stuart Stevens on our team are now independents. You, though, were actually an elected official, right? You were a conservative considered a conservative member of Congress, I should say, pretty staunch in your beliefs. And I just want to take people down the path because I think for a lot of us who've already done it, it seems easy. Like, oh, well, it was this and it was this and it was this and it was this. And so therefore I came to this place. But I think it's always interesting to hear other folks and how they came to this. So just give us a sense of how you go from being a, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, pretty fire breathing conservative member of Congress to running against the president of your own party, to decrying that party and looking for common ground with folks you disagree with. And Reed, you're being very kind because you probably despised me seven or eight or nine years ago. A lot of people did. I appreciate you being kind. Yeah, I was the fire-breathing Tea Party maniac. I went to Congress that class of 2010 to raise hell, shut down the government, go at Republicans and Democrats. I was all of that. And philosophically, Reed, I still am. I consider myself to be a pretty decent Tea Party libertarian conservative. It was the hardest thing I've ever done this journey I've been on, and I'm still on it. I don't know anybody else who did what I did. I come from the cult. I call myself a reform gangbanger. I talk about how I left the cult. I come from the GOP base. Trump's people were my people. They were my followers, my supporters, all of that. I come from conservative talk radio, Tucker Carlson and Hannity and Rush Limbaugh. That was the world I was in. And that is right now, you and I can talk, that is the Republican Party base. That's a radicalized base. So I left it and it was really, really hard to do. But in a sense, Reed, it was really easy to do because if you're a conservative like I am and you believe in the truth and limited government and the Constitution and the rule of law and democracy, you can't support what this Republican Party is. So it's been easy in that sense. But, yeah, it's been a hellish five or six years. Well, let me ask you, though, because 
you said something, which is your core beliefs haven't necessarily changed. You know, there are all those Republicans who say, I didn't leave the Republican Party. The Republican Party left me. Jeremy Peters of the New York Times wrote in his latest book that today's Republican voter, base voter, I should say, is not a Republican and is not a conservative. They're an anti-liberal. They live to own the libs. That's their whole reason for being. There's not much more belief beyond that other than whether or not it's the ugliness of Trump, the ugliness of Carlson, whatever it is. So therefore, when they vote for a Republican, the only thing they care about is that they're as sort of wild-eyed as they are, as opposed to, is this person going to be good for you know American governance? Are they going to be a good public servant? Are they going to serve with honor and decency and uphold their oaths? Were you that person? And do you believe that the majority of Republican voters are those people? Or is it a healthy but narrow slice of a party that has been overtaken by these folks and there's more vestigial sort of moderates out there who are just either scared, disaffected, disgusted, whatever the case might be. Reed, there are some of those out there. There are principled conservatives out there. There are moderates out there. But no, this isn't fringe anymore, baby. The base of the Republican Party is fully radicalized. Again, because I come from a different place, because I come from this world, the base, I still hear from and engage with hundreds of them every day. They've given up on democracy. And here's the deal, Reed, and I know you know this, and everybody puts it in a different way. What we're talking about is primarily middle-aged, older white men and women. They want 1953 America, and they no longer believe that democracy can get it back for them. They want an authoritarian to give them back their 1953 America. And again, I believe this is most Republican voters. I believe that people like me, the Tea Party guys, we inflamed these voters. I believe the establishment ignored these voters for years. So then when a demagogue came along in 2016 and said, I'm going to do it. I don't give a fuck about the rule of law. I'm going to bring you back 1954 America. Boom. The deal was done. I think that's right. And let me just speak as the former establishment <laughs> Republican guy in the conversation. I think that's right. Was that regardless of what campaign you worked on as a let's call it the consultant class, the establishment class, whatever it was, right? The guys in charge, the Tea Partiers or the social conservatives were the ones who were like, I always call the guy Gary, right? Gary was the one in the room. He was the guy who wore a suit every day, had a red tie on. And he had a little bit of a look in his eye that disturbed us because we thought, wow, this guy's a little kooky. We didn't go to his evangelical church. We were never yeah. going to probably didn't hold the same social views he did. But like we knew it was sort of a Faustian bargain. We couldn't win without them. And they had no voice without us. The problem was, is that that flipped and the establishment guys took it all for granted. And now we see where we are. Look, I can remember being back when I went to Congress. And Boehner's speaker. And look, these Tea Party, these people got me elected. And I remember telling Paul Ryan and telling John Boehner, man, they sent us here. You better pay attention to them. They're pissed off about people coming into the country illegally. They think crazy stuff like they can't say Merry Christmas anymore in America. But you've got to talk to them. You've got to listen to them. And Boehner and those guys just said, ah, dismissed them. And it just kept fomenting every day. And again, I'm guilty of helping to foment them, but it was just a disaster. But I want to bring up something you, you mentioned there, the quote unquote war on Christmas, right? And Starbucks takes Merry Christmas off its cups or whatever. And suddenly this becomes a thing for a lot of people. 
and this goes to something that you probably are as experienced with as anybody, which is Republicans fight culture wars that have electoral outcomes. And look, on the other side of that, Democrats could have said, we love Christmas. Everybody loves Christmas. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Christmas isn't going away. There's cultural touchstones became the sort of island hopping from one side of the crazy pond to the deeper side of the crazy pond. And now you're standing on the other side going, whoa, what the hell happened? Yeah. And Reed, that's the other world I come from is the Rush Limbaugh, Tucker Carlson, right wing talk world. And that's what we would do. And I did more of this than I'm proud of. I didn't do as much as almost all these people do. But you take one little thing of truth, like some Christmas parade in South Dakota banned religious music for their parade. You take that one example and you tell your listeners it's happening all over the country. That's how that world then gets ratings and a following. They purposely piss off their voters. And that's what they've done. In addition to the Republican Party ignoring their base, man, right wing media just fucking wound them up. And this is one thing that having spent now in the last couple, two plus years talking to a lot of Democrats, whether or not that's Democratic voters, Democratic activists, Democratic donors, is trying to explain that it's all part of the same ecosystem, that there is the conservative base that is looking for signals, a conservative media set that is providing those signals, social media, which is providing the synapses for the hive, for lack of a better way to put it, to push all this stuff around. Then you have a donor class, both very wealthy and individual donors who finance the whole thing. And then you've got, you know, the heritage actions and everybody else who provides sort of the, and I use this in the loose term, the intellectual backup for all this other yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the Democratic side of the aisle doesn't really have that because it's not hierarchical in nature. Like, I don't even want to call it conservative because I don't believe the folks that are in charge today are conservative. I think they're nihilists. So explain to our folks from the inside how that all works. I mean, you talked a little bit about finding that one bit of truth. And I think that was the one thing that I saw with Trump, not this year because he was totally unhinged this year before Ukraine, but in CPAC 21, if you watch the speech, there was stuff in there, Joe, that was just believable enough. Oh, absolutely. And, and Reed, you know, look, there's a little bit of truth in all of this. Are there people who've been trying to make it illegal to say Merry Christmas? Sure, there's some of that. Are there people who want to give amnesty to everybody in the country? Sure, there's some of that. But all you got to do is grab the one crazy outlier and turn it into the norm. And then you go on the radio like I went on the radio and you make it seem like it's the norm. And then everybody who's working on DeSantis's staff or Jim Jordan's staff, they then pick up what I say on the radio. And as you said, it's a loop. It's totally spot on, Reed. But I, I got to apologize for something because in all of this journey, I miss. there's one big thing about the base that I missed and I come from the base. And to me, it was all about the issues, period. But I missed how widespread the authoritarian impulse was in the base. I missed that. When Trump first got elected, Reed, and he's starting to do a bunch of unconstitutional shit, man, I would go on the radio and I would rail against him. I would hear from listener after listener, hey, Joe, lay off Trump. I don't care if he's acting like a king because he's giving me shit I want. I didn't give that authoritarian impulse enough weight back then. I wish I had. But, you know, it's interesting talking about, as you noted, giving me the stuff I want. None of it's tangible. None of it's analog. 
it's all up here in our heads because most of what Trump did policy-wise was to benefit the wealthiest among us. And, you know, when it came to, let's say, dealing with COVID, the people who disproportionately died and were sickened by that were his people, right? Lower income, lower educated, tended to be in the South, in more exurban and rural areas. And so, like, the only thing he ever did was give his buddies a tax break and help kill the people that would help him get reelected. Right. But there you go, too. He lies. Every other word out of his mouth is a lie. So I built five million miles worth of a wall. I made it legal to say Merry Christmas again. I kept every Muslim out of the country. There you go, too. He just lies. He didn't deliver, but he lies and they buy it all. And. Is it just easy enough to say there are a lot of folks who want to return to, and I actually, I'm a history nerd. I actually wrote my AP history exam on the 1950s and how it was actually an incredibly dynamic decade in recent American history. And it's not only the lying, it's building the fiction of going back to something that frankly never existed. You're right. So the base. You and I, if we were really honest, we'd have to admit that. And I've spoken to enough of these people, thousands and thousands of them over the years. They felt like the shit was changing in America so fast that you woke up one morning and, oh, my God, now men can marry men and women can marry women and men and women can share the same bathrooms. I mean, again, just a kernel of truth and you blow it up. But to them, everything was changing so fast. And the Republican base was like confused and scared. And I go back to instead of sitting them down and educating them and telling them what you just said, Reed, go back to what? And you can't go back. We want to move forward. This is a vibrant, dynamic country. We're not going to be as white in 20 years. But instead of having that really good conversation with the base, I think the party just dismissed them. And they then went off and got angrier and angrier. And then boom. Right. Well, no, look, I mean. At the beginning of the year, I had Barton Gelman on who wrote in the first issue of The Atlantic this year about January 6th. And one of the things he found, one of the researchers from the University of Chicago, I believe, said that what they found fascinating and concerning was that the people who were the most radicalized, the most likely to go to the Capitol on January 6th, were not young, uneducated, jobless men, but somewhat educated or college educated, professional white men somewhere between. 40 and 50. That's unusual in a sort of insurrectionist class because these are folks who otherwise they go to work every day, they probably take vacations, they have cars, they belong to clubs, whatever it is, but somehow they're more angry and more motivated to commit violence in the name of a politician or a political feeling. On the January 6th rally before the attack on the Capitol in my numbers may be a little off on this. There were like between 20 and 30,000 people who came to D.C. to rally for whatever, and only a couple thousand of them attacked the Capitol. But in that rally, read the 25 or 30,000 that came to D.C., boy, there's your base. And most of that crowd is middle, older white men and women. And what is scary to me is if you pulled the 30,000 people who went to that rally, most of those 30,000 people either have no problem with what the insurrectionists did or they actually take pride in what the insurrectionists did. 
that's the base of the party really was everybody who came to that rally. That's scary to me. Okay, so let's talk about that rally for a second. So there's a guy named Mo Brooks, congressman from Alabama, who is running for United States Senate in Alabama. He was at the rally that day extolling the virtues of Trump, extolling the virtues of the big lie. As we're recording this, Joe, Donald Trump has rescinded his endorsement of Brooks because Brooks hasn't. Well, first of all, it looks like he's going to have a tougher primary than anybody thought, which I guess in retrospect shouldn't be a surprise. But also now Brooks is saying Trump wanted me to do this thing the whole time. He keeps calling me and saying, you can still do this. You can still do this. So like you go from a guy who stands on the stage with Trump demanding that Congress do its job and basically overturn an election to he was telling me to do it. He keeps trying to tell me to do it. I mean, there's no I guess the bottom line is that there's no loyalty. Reed, as you and I know, and so many people know it's a cult. Everybody says that. I think a lot of people don't understand what we're talking about when we say it. It's a cult. Look, you and I know Trump dumped Mo because Mo's not going to win. That's fine. Mo Brooks, I got elected with him. I knew him back then. I served with him. There was something charming about him, but I knew he was a nut. Paul Gozar, I knew he was a nut. But man, 10 years later, they're beyond being nuts. I mean, Jim Jordan and I were really close best friends when we were in Congress because I thought at the time we both shared the beliefs in freedom and limited government and balanced budgets, but Mo and Gozar and Jim Jordan and all the rest, Mick Mulvaney, all these other guys who I knew so well, they literally sold out everything they believed in to worship this guy. And look, if I had still been there, I would never have been able to do that. But Mo Brooks knows. Mo Brooks knows what you and I know about Trump, but he still can't say anything. So I want to get back to you for a second. You know, I'll just tell you, I mean, I was always a squish Republican, right? I am. I was the definition (laughs) of a rhino. I was never a conservative, Joe, right? I mean, you remember there was a time when you could be a conservative or a Republican, or you could be a conservative Republican. And by the way, for our audience listening to us right now, 10 years ago, there's no doubt Reed Galen would have called Joe Walsh a Tea Party extremist. And Reed, I probably would have called you a squish. Yeah, Uh, probably. And I probably still am that, uh, but that's okay. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I lived in California, worked for Arnold Schwarzenegger and worked for John McCain. I mean, these are people who wouldn't even make the stage now, right? Or probably wouldn't even go up there because God, why would you? But for me, it was like so many. When I saw Trump come down the escalator, I thought he was a joke. You know, five months later, I'm like, this guy's going to win the nomination. And at that point, I was sort of like, I'm out. If this is what the party wants, like, I can't do it anymore. And also my, again, being a history nerd and seeing how these things work and seeing the language and everything else. For you, what was that straw that broke the back? I'll get to the straw in a second. So when Trump came down that escalator, and gave that speech, and everybody like you rightly dismissed it. What a goof, what a bad guy, what a joke. I go on the radio that night, Reed, and everybody who calls into my radio show says, finally, finally, there's somebody saying what needs to be said. And look, the reason I voted for Trump in 2016 is I didn't love him or like him. He wasn't Hillary. I figured he was just a goof, and maybe some things will get done. But I understood what was behind Trump. It was a genuine feeling of the Republican Party sucks. The Democratic Party sucks. Blow it up. Burn it down. We need a disruptor. And Reed, I got to be honest. Again, there was part of me back there. I still believed we needed good disruption. Now, in Trump, we got horrible, evil disruption. 
I am guilty, Reed, of in 2016, I didn't pay enough attention to Trump. I never watched The Apprentice. I did not fully realize what a bad, horrible, evil person he was. What broke me finally from him? Right when he got elected and I started to pay attention, every word out of his mouth is a lie. I can't have that with anyone who serves in government. So I started to go really south on him. I started to lose my radio show in certain markets. I started to lose listeners every day, week, and month. I was losing followers and supporters. The final straw for me, Reed, was Helsinki in 2018. When he stood in front of the world and said, screw you, America, I stand with Putin. I went on the radio that night and I said, I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure Donald Trump isn't reelected. That was like the last straw. And then I began to lose everything. There's a line. You don't always know when you're going to come to that line. You don't always know what it's going to look like. But at some point, you have to decide, okay, well, here I am. What side of it am I going to stand on? And the the listeners have heard this before, Joe. Right before the election in 2020, we wrote an op-ed saying, when he loses, Trump won't go quietly. And all of our friends, many of who still live in Washington, D.C., who still work in Republican politics, you're going to have to make a choice. Are you going to stand on this side of the line? Are you going to stand on that side of the line? And They all crossed the line. Some of them ran, some of them crawled, some of them tiptoed, but they all went. And I would like to say I'm shocked, but I'm not. Because at this point, as you know, Washington, D.C., as much as anything, is a business. I call them political bureaucrats, right? They're either in government, they're waiting to get back to government, they make money off the government, they lobby, they consult, whatever it is. And they're like, well, this is the power center, so this is where I'm going to go. You and I, Reed, would be called never Trumpers. And I'm asked every freaking day what I mean by never Trumper. Here's what I mean. Here's where my line is. I will never and can never support anyone who voted for him in 2020. After four years of watching him as president, if you still voted for him, I can never, ever support you. So I will never support a Ron DeSantis, a Ted Cruz, a Marco Rubio. And you know what's weird, Reed? Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, we you know praise them now. They both voted for Trump in 2020. I can never vote for them because we had the proof then after four years. And I know we all have different lines, but this is what convinces me that I don't think the party can be saved, that something different is coming, because I think there are a lot of people who feel like I do. Anybody who still supports him, I can't support. Well, let me ask you that, because we have elections coming up, obviously, every two years, and I have very little solid one piece of quantitative data that proves this to me. But I think Ukraine was a touchstone for a lot of people, which is, as I was telling you a story about an old friend of mine, when Tucker goes on and he's pro-Putin, And Trump's calling this guy a genius. And now we look at places like Maripol or Kharkiv that look like Berlin, 1945. Now, it will take years to recover once the war is over, that there's this tension that we all grew up in the Cold War. I just watched Red Dawn last night, Ah, right? (laughs) The original, not the ridiculous remake. And that was that was 1984. I was eight years old. And (laughs) I remember, yes. American kids taking on the Ruskies, right? The commies. And so whether or not it's a juvenile position that I grew up with like that, or someone who remembers World War II or whose parents were in World War II and remember the Cold War and duck and cover and everything else, the Russians were never the good guys. And so I think that there's this sort of latent, like, wait a second, what are we for? And then I I saw this Public Religion Research Institute survey of a couple of weeks ago that was asking about LGBT issues, which Again, I'm not talking about whether or not you agree on those issues. What I found interesting was that even 
when a majority of Republicans said, no, the business owner doesn't have to provide service or they shouldn't be able to do this or that, the majority was like 51, 52%. It wasn't like 60 or 70%. And then I think there's just the, you know, you mentioned DeSantis, like there's just this outright ugliness. And so where I mentioned the culture war piece, Joe, now that seems to be the only trick in the book they have. Is that enough to get them over the line in a November 2020, 22, excuse me? Reed, look, I'm a dark Irishman, and unless there's a miracle and all of a sudden every Democrat gets off their ass and votes, I think the Republicans have the House locked up, sadly, and I think they got a decent chance to get the Senate, sadly. I think unless he's in jail or dead, Donald Trump's going to run. The nomination is his in 2024. The Democrats are in trouble, and they're going to have a hard time beating him, sadly. To your point on Russia and Ukraine, I believe the Republican Party is now firmly an authoritarian embracing party. But I do think that what Putin has done has given some pause to that, which is interesting. It could be a wild card. Final point I'll make is, read January 6th happens, and there's like a one-week window where even when I was talking to the hardcore base after January 6th, they were like, oh, but now here we are a year and change later, and they don't give a damn about January 6th, or they take pride in it. I think right now, this Russian invasion could make some of the base pause. But then I think maybe in a few months before the election, it'll just be baked in and away we go. Is there a way to break it? I don't think so. I think the party's done. And I think the Republican Party is dying as a national party. I think it's going to become like a very strong regional rural party. But I don't think this party can be changed. I think we're at one of those weird inflection points in American history where within the next six to eight years, we're going to see a viable centrist right, centrist left, let's get shit done political party. Do you worry that if this Republican Party is successful in 22 and 24, that that spells the end of American democracy as we know it? Yeah, you know what pisses me off, Reed? Because I I do believe that. And I say that all the time when conservative intellectuals poo-poo and dismiss that. Fuck no. Yes. <laughs> I, I believe our democracy is hanging by a thread. I believe if Trump is in the White House again, it will be 2016 to 2020 on steroids. I really do believe that. I wish we had a Democrat, Reed, who could talk like that. You know, it's interesting because, you know, speaking of Democrats who talk like that, and this is one thing that we've talked about in, as we talk to our friends in the Democratic Party, because, Joe, you guys, by the way, read the Lincoln Project talks that way. Well, because, Joe, as you know, as a former Republican, as I am, whether or not you're going into office or whether or not you're an operative, what is the only goal on Election Day? To win, baby. To win, baby. That's it. Yeah. No one's going to remember the election the day after it happens. Even Mitch McConnell says winners make policy and losers go home. There are no moral victories in politics, right? Like you win or you lose. It is that defined. It is that black and white. You know, we've been looking at this, you know, there's the House and the Senate, but also places like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, where the wrong person gets elected governor there. The wrong person gets elected secretary of state there. They'll just steal the goddamn thing. Because, Joe, I believe that in the late 2020, early 2021, a lot of those legislators, and I believe you were a state legislator, didn't know what to do. They hadn't been in this spot before. But I think they've learned. And to your point, there has been no sanction for anybody. 
except for the people, the individuals who actually stormed the Capitol. None of the leaders have been put on trial. I hope to God that the January 6th committee actually starts holding hearings, but no one's being held to account. And therefore, why wouldn't they be more emboldened to act in a similar fashion going forward? I tell Democrats all the time, and you probably do too, Reed, what are you doing? Pay attention to what's going on in Wisconsin, Indiana, and Missouri. You need to be paying attention to the states. Republicans rightly have been doing this, getting their people elected. I mean, I always say this, Marjorie Taylor Greene is horrible. Imagine 25 Marjorie Taylor Greens as secretaries of state out there after this next election. And look, Reed, the heart of this is the Democratic Party has always looked to the federal government to be the be-all, end-all. And that's just mistaken. I have been now to probably seven or eight states in the last three months because we've launched something, Joe, called The Union, yes, join the like union.us, yep. to serve as a grassroots hub to get pro-democracy candidates elected. And the one thing I find is I've talked to probably dozens of groups now. These are folks who have a very clear understanding of what it is their people want, what it is their people need, what it is their communities are looking for and looking to hear. And it very rarely matches up with what's coming out of Washington, D.C., not surprisingly. It is not, generally speaking, progressive. It's not conservative either. It's far more nuanced, I guess. And I think also that there's the part two, Joe, which is like, OK, well, you fit into this demographic class. Ergo, you must all believe this thing. When, in fact, there are like 26 different Central and South American constituencies in South Florida, right? Like all of them with their own beliefs, their own languages, their own way of speaking, their own idioms, everything else. And so I think that's where, you know, I've been both heartened and fascinated that like there are people out there who believe what the issue is. They see the problems before them. But to your point, they don't like the Republicans generally because they don't like the ugliness or the white nationalism or anything. Can't blame them for that. But they're not getting what they need from the Democrats either. And my fear, Joe, is that that means they just stay home. Most Americans read are not Trumpists. Most Americans are not leftists. Most Americans are like center left, center right. And to your point, middle class, working class, day to day voters. I'm not a Democrat, but my God, the Democratic Party has kind of become this elitist thing, no longer in touch with working class, white, black and brown folk. Damn, they got to do something about that. Well, I think that's right. So do you see any green shoots? You said you're the dark Irishman, but do you see any green shoots for, I'm going to say, small d democracy here? Look, I consider myself to be a historian like you. I love this thing called the American experiment, but I've always worried that it won't last forever. I worry that we may be irrevocably divided. The one green shoot I see is young people finally really waking up. And not just young leftists, but young people in the middle finally waking up and getting engaged. I've never seen this before. And it's probably because of Trump, because Trump was such an ugly, horrible president. It's woken people up. Well, Joe, tell us a little bit more about your podcast and what it is you try and do, the kinds of folks you have on. Thank you, Reed. And by the way, thank you for everything you and the Lincoln Project do. Look, if you were going to have a poster of the five or six or seven people who most divided America the last, what, 10 to 12 years, I'd be on that poster, man. I would be on that poster. I helped to divide the country. White Flag with Joe Wallace, the podcast, is all about doing something about that divide. Every week I sit down with somebody who doesn't think like me 
and we try to find common ground on an issue, on a philosophy. We at least try to model how to have respectful conversation. I sit down with people all over the political spectrum, actors, actresses, politicians, thinkers, you name it. And we try to find common ground. It, look, it doesn't always work. Uh, that was my next question. Was, <laughs> you may be a, a fiery guy, but I feel like you're a respectful guy. How often are you able to keep the respectful frame around things? Well, I'll dance a little bit, man, around my answer. But by far the toughest group to stay respectful with right now, obviously, are hardcore Trump supporters. They, interestingly, as well, Reed, are also the toughest to agree to come on the podcast and have a conversation with me. Even some of my former colleagues in Congress or former colleagues on the radio. Well, one of my favorite authors is John Le Carre, who wrote, you know, a million spy novels, really created the genre. And in one of the best movies made of his books, Tinker Tailor's Soldier Spy, George Smiley, the protagonist, says, the fanatic always harbors a secret doubt. (laughs) And I think that's probably why they don't come on, because... There is that little bit of them inside that never goes away and never falls asleep that says, this isn't right. This isn't okay. And if they come on and face you, and it might be that, Joe, you are of them. If it was a hardcore liberal a or point. progressive host, they'd go in with shields up and ready to fight. But with you, they know you know them. Like, Reed, I had Rick Santorum on about a month ago, and man, it was frustrating as all hell. I had him on for an hour. There we are for an hour. He's like me. He's saying all this stuff about Trump, how bad Trump is, how unfit Trump is, and all the rest. I'm a little surprised, but then about three quarters of the way through the podcast, through the conversation, he says, but if Trump's still the nominee, I'm going to vote for him in 24. I couldn't fucking believe it. What is it about whether or not it's a Santorum or a McConnell or even what we've saw in these ridiculous interviews with Bill Barr, where they all talk about how he's the worst person in the world. He's the worst president that we've ever had out of 46. But if he runs again, sure, I'll vote for him. Why not? What? Explain that to me, because it doesn't compute for me. It's one of two things. And I've had a hundred of my former colleagues say exactly what you just said to me over the last few years. It's either a straight party over country or it's I've had so many former members tell me privately, Joe, I believe Trump is everything you say he is publicly, but the Democrats are evil. We have to beat them, period. No, and, you know, I hear that a lot, too, from some family members, some friends. Oh, well, you know, Trump might be bad, but the Democrats are worse. And I'm like, let's be clear. Trump is bad. And the Democrats are the party that Will Rogers said they are. Like, yeah, exactly. He's not part of any organized political organization. He's a Democrat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. And I truly do believe this, Joe. Unlike the Republican Party, where the fringe has become the norm, in the Democratic Party, the fringe is still the fringe. The establishment represents most of the party. But of course, like all fringe people, the loudest voices get the most attention. And Republicans, again, back to the culture war thing, whether or not it's critical race theory or the Green New Deal or whatever, use it as a cudgel to make folks that you're describing believe that. I don't know if this is Bill Barr, but I think there are a lot of these people who say to me all the time, yeah, Trump's evil, but I'm going to vote for him if he's the nominee. They don't really believe it when they say Trump's evil. 
And there are a lot of them, I think, who secretly love that he's a fucking son of a bitch and he's a criminal and he gets away with it and he's lawless and he lies all the time and gets away with it. And secretly, privately, they love it because they don't have the balls to be that way. So they lie. I would take it one step further. He has opened the door for them to be that way. He has opened the door for the Karens and the Kevins to act like they do. Right. I mean, I always use the example of in Southern California, where my wife's from, the guy in the blacked out Range Rover probably $125,000, $130,000 vehicle, shiny as can be with the don't tread on me sticker on the bumper. Like this is a guy who's never been tread on in his life. Yeah. But now he feels like he can be the asshole he always wanted to be because the leader of the free world or the almost leader of the free world, you know, basically made it okay. And that's, I guess, one thing that Stuart Stevens on our team likes to say is, Joe, leadership matters. Yeah. To Stuart's point in that point, we are going to have more Marjorie Taylor Greens in the house next year oh for sure and we've tried to tell people that all right joe first and foremost thanks for joining me second where can folks find you on social media i'll keep it simple reed you can follow me on twitter at walsh freedom and check out the podcast wherever you go to get your podcast it's called white flag with joe walsh joe i want to thank you so much for joining me today everybody check out joe's podcast i hope everybody is safe and healthy and we will see you next time Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.